All right, we were in Luke chapter 3. We ended on verse 14 where John the Baptist was talking to the Roman soldiers and telling them not to to be content with their wages and not to do violence and things of that nature. And we said that was kind of prophetic because it would later be the wages of the soldiers that would contribute to the downfall of the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the emperors, one emperor would, would give them a bunch of money and they would support him and then that emperor would be disposed or, or die and the next emperor would come along and he'd try to fix the finances of the empire and, uh, it wouldn't really work because the soldiers wanted more money than the, the system could bear. And they eventually had to use foreign mercenaries that turned on them. But that'll be several hundred years in the future, so we'll pick it up in verse 15. And as the people were in expectation, as all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So here we see John saying that he isn't the Christ, and it would probably have been a temptation to other men to, to take some of this glory on for themselves, but it shows the character of John the Baptist that he, he did not know that he, he received a message from God in the wilderness and then he came, he came forth and he began preaching boldly and he gathered a great following. Uh, we'll take a look at another place that kind of exemplifies his character in John chapter 3, verse 25. John three twenty-five. And then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And there came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. And so they're talking about Jesus here. Jesus was at this time baptizing some of his disciples. I believe he baptized his early disciples and then there isn't much record of him doing much more baptizing. Besides that, they went off and they began baptizing. But that's what this is talking about. They were telling John that Jesus was baptizing people. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. So John was clearly telling them that he was not the Christ. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, and he that is the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So Christ is the bridegroom, and the church, or the believers, his followers, are his bride. And John was just a friend of the bridegroom, but just to be in the presence of the bridegroom gave John great joy. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. So this is a hard thing for people. Once we have some sort of notoriety, we'll see this with famous people, politicians, actresses, uh, things of that nature, athletes, 
it is very hard to let go of this fame and adoration of people. But here John says that Jesus must increase, but John himself must decrease. And he steps out of the way as a messenger that is crying in the wilderness, making way, making straight the paths of the people before the Messiah would appear. He that cometh from above is above all, and he that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth, and he that cometh from heaven is above all. So what I think that is saying is John's from the earth, and he speaks to the people of this earth, and when Jesus came, he was from heaven, and it also in flesh, but he spoke of the things of heaven. We see in his preaching that not particularly concern himself with the affairs of this world so much. So he gave us plenty of guidance on how to behave morally. Um, the things that he instructed us to treasure were not the things of this world which passeth away. So we'll go back to Luke chapter 3. Back in verse 17 and, and John's here speaking and telling them about what the Christ will do when he appears. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather wheat into his grainer. But the chafe he will burn with fire unquenchable. This fan is a winnowing fan. So when the people in those times would harvest wheat or grain, they would take the sickle, they'd cut down the stalk, and they bring it into the threshing floor and they beat the grain, sometimes on sheets or blankets. There were, there were several different methods. Sometimes they would use oxen. But they'd take this, this grain on these sheets and they'd throw it into the air because with the, in with the wheat kernels, there would be chafe mixed in like the, the husk and, and all the trash that you couldn't bake or grind in the meal. And they'd throw it up and the wind would carry that away. Or if there was no wind, they would have large fans and they would fan it and it would separate the, the good wheat from the chafe. And he's using an analogy for the, the good people being the good grain that is kept, and the bad people or the unbelievers are the chafe, which will be cast aside and burned with unquenchable fire. This harkens back to the lake of fire and the garbage pen of Gehenna, which is what Christ will later say hell will be like but we'll go into more of that when it, the time comes. Verse 18, And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the treachery uh, being reproved by him, being reproved by John the Baptist, being reproved of him for Heroditus, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. And yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So what this is talking about is the King Herod here. This is one of the places where secular histories kind of coincide with the Bible. Although it is the Jewish historian Josephus who mentions this, this episode as well. Herod at this time, according to Josephus, he saw his brother Philip's wife, Heroditus, and she was beautiful. And they conspired that they'd get married. So he said whenever he was coming back to Jerusalem and she was going to follow him there and meet him and they were going to get married. The only problem was he was already married 
and it was his brother's wife as well. He was married to an Arabian king's daughter, and the daughter found out about it, and she, according to Josephus, she didn't let Herod know that that she knew that he was planning on marrying his, I guess, his sister-in-law. Yeah, and uh, so she went on a, a journey. She asked to go see her father, and they let her go. And when she got there, she told him everything that happened, so he decided to make war with Herod. And over the course of things, Herod's army was destroyed, and Josephus said that the people blamed the destruction on God, or not blamed it, but said it was from God because of Herod killing John the Baptist because they had great esteem for John the Baptist. And Josephus was a Jewish historian speaking to the Romans. He, was, he wrote around 100 AD. But all that isn't contained in the Bible. It's just from uh, secular history. Now this goes back to before John was cast in prison in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying and heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in the bodily shape like a dove upon him and a voice came from heaven which it said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So we have this very famous passage of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit descending in the shape of a dove and lighting on his shoulder. And then there was a great voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry and his showing forth to the people. This is a peculiar thing as we've been speaking about Jesus being God made flesh in the in the world, why would a voice come from heaven and say, and this is my beloved son and who am I well pleased? Any thoughts? See if I can do it from memory. Let's say John chapter 12, 37. Okay, we'll go to 27 actually. It's a good thing I highlight stuff sometimes. John 12, 27. Now, Jesus speaking, now my soul, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause, I came into this hour. He's talking about his crucifixion and death. He's uh, lamenting uh, his, his worry for that. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people thereof that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. And others said, an angel spake to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world, and now shall the prince of this world be cast out. 
So we see there from Jesus' own mouth that with the voice from heaven, I believe there are three recorded instances of the, the voice coming from heaven. Once at the baptism here and again at when Jesus was transfigured in front of his apostles. As you said, it is a sign to those who were gathered because there would have been many, a large crowd come to see John and then when Jesus was baptized there would be a, a miracle there with the voice the, uh, coming from heaven. So back in verse 23 of Luke, Luke chapter 3, 23, verse 23. And Jesus Himself being about 30 years of age. Here's one of the places that gives Jesus' age. He's around 30. Fairly young, as we know. Just reaching maturity. And then we have all these words and deeds from him that defy age that come to us as the wisest and most powerful words ever spoken and they were spoken by a young man who had knowledge well beyond his mere 30 years okay so we'll go into a genealogy here this genealogy is the genealogy of Mary that we'll see here in a second. It names it as Joseph's. This is the correct genealogy of Jesus. There is another genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. It is the genealogy of Joseph, who, as we know, is not Jesus' biological father. Though it is similar, it is not quite the same. This is Mary's genealogy. Yeah, it's like their their pedigree, like this one begat that one, and that one begat this one, bloodline to bloodline to show that Christ had the pure blood uh, all the way from Adam, and he was not mixed with any other uh, people or whatnot. Also, we remember from Genesis chapter six, the uh, fallen angels came down and they sought to corrupt the bloodline of the Adamic people there by intermingling the angels and the women. And it said that Noah was the only one of that area that was perfect in his generations. So it is very, remember, Christ must be without spot or blemish. So therefore, he had to have a pure bloodline. It was um, something that the people of that era placed a lot of stock in. And... Jesus himself being about 30 years of age being, and you see here in parentheses, as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. So this term, as was supposed, is a legal term. It means in law or as reckoned by law. So it's like when we were say our mother-in-law or father-in-law, in the eyes of the law, these are our near kinsmen though not biological. And I'll go through all these as they are all important and they are recorded here in the word of the Lord and they deserve their due honor for their, for their goodness. Which was the son of, and you'll have to forgive me for butchering some of these names, Mattat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Janna, which was the son of Joseph. Here we have another Joseph, which is common, you know. We're all named after our fathers, uncles, brothers, whoever. 
which was the son of, of Matthias, which was the son of Amos, which was the son of Nahum, which was the son of Ishlai, which was the son of Nagi, which was the son of Mathath, which was the son of Matthias, which was the son of uh, Simei, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joanna, which was the son of Arisha, which was the son of Zoror Babel, which was the son, the Zoror Babel, most likely. I didn't really check this, but it was probably during the Babylonian captivity because that in there, Babel would probably be in Babylonian, but I'm just speculating there. Which was the son of uh, Shaltiel, which was the son of Neri, which was the son of uh, Melchi, which was the son of Adai, which was the son of Kosam, which was the son of Elodam, which was the son of Ur, which was the son of Josie, which was the son of Eleazar, which was the son of Jorim, which was the son of of Matthiah, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Simeon, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Jonan, which was the son of Eliakim, which was the son of Meleah, which was the son of Menan, which was the son of Matthiah, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. So the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, uh, the line comes through King Solomon, but this is David's other son, Nathan, who was not the king, which was the son of David, that would be King David, which was the son of Jesse, and which was the son of Obed, which was the son of Booth, which was the son of Salmon, now this son of Booz, Booz in the Old Testament is Boaz. And he is in the book of Ruth, uh, the Moabitess Ruth. She married into the Israelite family. And her husband died and she, instead of going back to her own people, she stayed with Naomi, who was an Israelite woman, and came back to her own people. And they were very poor and she was out gleaning in the fields and one man uh, Boaz took kindness on her he was probably uh, older than her and I believe he had some land in the area we don't know how long it lasted because we have he would be King David's great grandfather and we know from the book of Samuel that uh, Jesse was not a rich man Boaz seemed to have had some possessions and he took the Moabitess Ruth to wife and had they had the son Obed. Um, in that book, it gives part of the marriage, the requirements of marriage. So in the Bible, there's no set things that make you marry. It's other than having sexual intercourse with the woman. And in the book of Ruth, he cast his mantle upon her, which means that he took her under his wing and he started caring for her and she became his wife. So those are the requirements 
of marriage there. Um, the rest is basically tradition that has come down to us from time immemorial. Um, continuing on, which was the son of uh, Nasson, which was the son of Aminadab, which was the son of Aram, which was the son of Eshram, which was the son of uh, Paris, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Jacob. Now this Judah was, this last Judah in verse 33 was Judah that was one of the 12 tribes. So his brothers would have been the other of the 12 tribes. And his father was Jacob, who was also called Israel, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham, which was the son of Tara, which was the son of Nacor, which was the son of Asheru, which was the son of Aregu, which was the son of Phalet, which was the son of Heber, which, now this Heber here is where the Hebrew people get their name from Heber, which was the son of Selal, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Aphaxed, which was the son of Shem. Shem uh, would be Noah's son, and that is where we get the term Shematic languages and Shemites uh, as a racial people. Which was the son of Noah. This is a Greek of Noah. Which was the son of Lamech. Which was the son of Methuselah. Which was the son of Enoch. If we remember Enoch was one of two people who was taken before their death to heaven to be with the Lord. The other being Elijah the prophet. Which was the son of Jared. Which was the son of Maliel which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So there's the whole genealogy of Christ. And if we remember that Mary was the cousin of Elizabeth, who was of the daughters of Aaron, we have her father's line came through Judah, and her mother's line would have came through Levi, so we have the king and the priest line in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In the book of Mark, it says immediately after his baptism, he was driven of the Spirit into the wilderness. So we see a man kind of possessed and sent out, driven by a call that must be heeded, and he went out into the Judean wilderness, uh, which is basically a desert, and he isolated himself there. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So we, we know from hunger strike victims, or not victims, but participants, in, in the modern age, that after around... 45 days, the uh, the body begins to, to kill itself in a, in a hunger strike. I think some of the ones that went on hunger strike over in Ireland, I believe they lasted around 60 days before they starved themselves to death. So we have Jesus right here, most likely 
very near death and when the devil comes into comes to him and if we can imagine his body would be emaciated and he would be terribly hungry and weak in mind and spirit this will be a great test just that the hung most people would quit after three days of a, a hunger strike or, or or fasting even one day um, but then we have the one called the tempter coming to him this was the most subtle and charismatic creature that has ever been created by god and he come there to to tempt god himself when god's spirit was housed in a flesh body which felt pain and hunger and he appeared to him at this time to try to tempt him. Being forty days tempted to the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered and said, It is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And here he's quoting from the Old Testament, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And so we see here that as the author of the Bible, God, uh, Jesus knows the Bible very well. But we also see that the devil knows the Bible just as well. He's very, very subtle in his corruption of the word of God. Verse 5, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That's a strange phrase, in a moment of time. We don't really know what that moment of time is. Maybe it is the whole course of human history, or maybe a, a set time in the world. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give unto thee, and the glory of them for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. So we see at first he tempted a very hungry man with bread. And then he tempted, when that didn't work, he came back and he tempted him with power and adoration and even worship. But all he had to do was worship the devil. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And here he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 14 and 10, verse 20. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And then he said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And here the devil quotes scripture. He quotes Psalms chapter 91 verse 11 and 12. And he tempts Christ in a manner of showing a sign. And as we spoke before, uh, be careful what signs you request of God because He will generally give them to you, though not necessarily in the fashion that you would think. Verse 12, And Jesus answered unto him, 
It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season or, or a short time. Now, nowhere does it say that there are three temptations of Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, there are also temptations of Christ. They're very similar, but they're in a different order. And it says here he departed from him for a season, which means he came back. It is different than the ending in Matthew. Let's see, where is that at? Let's go to Matthew 4.11. So many people would say that this is a contradiction because these are not the same exactly. But it is not because it is very possible that they are two different occasions. Matthew 4.11 And the devil leadeth him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. So after these temptations of Matthew... The devil's temptation of Christ was over and for sure unsuccessful. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And from there that would be Luke chapter 4, 14. So he returned out of the wilderness after the angels ministered unto him and brought him back to health. And once he came forth from the wilderness. He did not stop his ministry until he was crucified. So he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, fasted for 40 days, 40 nights, was tempted by the devil. And then when he burst forth from the wilderness, uh, he began the greatest ministry the world has ever known. And this is coming from an unknown carpenter in a backwoods Roman providence, and he would go on, as we will see, and as we see today, a church on every corner almost, um, to change the world. But we'll end there for tonight. Are there any questions? Yeah. You know, Jesus was born a baby. And I, you know, and I, but at what time was he in God when he was a baby? Or he come to, I mean, God come in when he was 13 or like 33? Or at what point did Jesus become, you know, God and Jesus one? At what point did they become one? Or was he, they was one when he was born? Or is like God just letting Jesus be his junk? The way I would, so this is a complex subject. And so there's probably been religions founded on, on this one question here. The way I see it is, if, like, um, uh, there's one place in the Bible that says we have no remembrance of the former things. And in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, it says there was a world before this one, this one, and a world yet to come. And other places it says before the catapult or, or the foundation. Anytime you see the, the phrase before the foundations of the world, it, it occurs like 11 times, something like that. It means uh, the catabol of the overthrow. And we have other places, though it's not spelled out extremely directly. It looks as if Satan started a war in heaven and pulled away about one-third of the souls that uh, God created. And then they were sent into this age having no remembrance of the former things. So if 
God's soul was in the body of Christ and came from heaven, we will see that he has one advantage. I would say that he has the advantage over us in knowing who he was and remembrance of the former things. Without that, he would not be able to do the preaching that he did. I mean, this was a, it's not like he went and studied somewhere. He just knew it. And if we believe that God, that Jesus is God made flesh in this body, uh, because I think it's in Hebrews, it says that he likewise himself came to be partakers of the flesh as he did his children. And he would have had foreknowledge of what had happened. And we saw previously here in Luke that he was able to debate with the greatest Jewish scholars at 12 years of age. And, you know, in this age, sometimes there's prodigies in music and chess and things like that that are very young that are able to compete with adults. But generally, these would have been the greatest uh, scholars alive at that time. They were Jewish. They were in the temple in Jerusalem. And Christ, being a young child, was able to stay there and astonish them. So I would say that he had knowledge from the time he was born. And it also says there when his parents came back and they were upset that he had wandered off, he placed himself into subjection to them, uh, kind of given the impression that he didn't have to, but he did it in order to, to follow the law and because it was the right thing to do. It would have been a sin not to honor your father and mother. And we know that Christ was without sin. So my answer is that he had foreknowledge from the time that his, probably from the time his soul entered. We remember that um, whenever Mary met John the Baptist's mother and John the Baptist was six months old in, in her womb, that the baby leapt, that the spirit that was in Mary sent forth something that the one that was in Elizabeth's womb recognized and the baby leapt in her womb. So from the very beginning of the conception, the, the power of the Lord was with Christ. You know, I, I can't say from what is written what moment the, the child had recollection. I can personally remember when I was two years old, maybe some small memories and we can expect that Christ would have been much superior to that. That's the best I can answer it. There are certain logic problems that, that we run into with the old language and what has been passed out to us by 2,000 years. We Sometimes we just have to use uh, the evidence that is there. And for me, that is what the evidence is that it, that it is there. Any other questions?